been a tough year for all of us. When I feel overwhelmed about the challenges we faced, I often refer back to some of the conversations I've had on this show. So I wanted to share 10 lessons that I've learned from our past guests that have helped me, and I hope they've helped you too. If you have a favorite episode or a lesson that you've learned from one of our episodes, please reach out to me and let me know. You can find me on LinkedIn under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter and Instagram at JenFish23. And don't forget, you can listen to the full episodes on your favorite podcatcher. I want to say thank you to our producers and all of our guests and our listeners. You are the ones that really make this show possible. First, it is never the wrong time to seek help for your mental health. My, co- my conversation with Dr. Christine Moutier, Chief Medical Officer for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, revealed that when you are struggling, seek help regardless of circumstances and current events. If you are experiencing unusual amounts of, of worry, anxiety, stress, perhaps depression, how do you how do you know when to ask for help? Like at what point should you reach out to ask for help and, and where can one go to get help right now? Um, well, my personal view is that as a society, we haven't learned about when to kind of recognize when it's time to seek help because we've been so well practiced at writing everything off to the stress or the circumstance of the moment that we haven't realized that certainly while things absolutely are tied to the things happening in our life moment by moment, that there's nothing incorrect about that, but it kind of almost takes a passive approach then like, well, so let's just wait and see then when this stressor ends, how I'm doing then. Um, Or, well, wouldn't anybody be that stressed out if they were going through X, Y, or Z? And that's a very, I actually view that as a very dangerous um, but yet common and alluring um, way of thinking because it it says, it, on the one hand, I, I completely agree that these are all, we're all having very normal human responses. In a way, it's like a trauma response. There's a human mm-hmm. response to that. That's completely natural. And yet, it, it doesn't mean that we don't seek help for those things. And so, so if, for example, you're finding that your sleep is, is being disrupted and you're having trouble self-managing that and getting it back intact, that is, is a sure sign that, um, that it's time to try something new, at least get some input on, on what can be done to manage what's going on, if, if not a specific sleep strategy, but even just a stress management strategy um, or you know therapy for the anxiety specifically. If you find that the anxiety that which most of us are having some degree of most certainly right now. But if you find that it's sort of all consuming and that your, your, your worry is front and center and it's very hard to focus on anything else. Um, and of course, that's one of the reasons that, that the, we're, we're all saying really limit your media intake right now mm-hmm. and absolutely avoid sensationalized information right now because it's just fuel for that fire of anxiety. Um, but 
you know, some people are very much more vulnerable to going down that deep anxiety um, hole that it takes us into. And, and we don't realize that it is something that is treatable because it feels so, so in line with reality, <laughs> that the, the cir circumstance that we're in. And yet the ramifications of it in your life, in your health, it can also be a very physical response. If you find that you're having headaches, um, I already mentioned the sleep disruption, but changes in your appetite, your, if you're overusing alcohol or substances, um, that your physical tension in your body, sexual dysfunction can happen related to stress and overwhelming anxiety. All of those physical signs would also be indicators that it's, it's time to seek professional help. The second lesson is that there are many definitions of well-being. Each is unique and personal. When I talked to Dr. Lakeisha Hallman, founder and CEO of The Village Market, I was really moved by her explanation of what self-care means to her as an entrepreneur. I know that you are a pretty outspoken advocate uh, for self-care, especially among the, you know, amongst the entrepreneur community. We know it's a community that in, in a lot of cases has a higher instance of burnout. And, and you said it earlier when you were talking about passion and, you know, being that octop octopus that, that could, could grow the extra arm. But you also said something about making sure that you got a good night's sleep so you could show up at your best. So let's talk about, um, you know, the kind of the convergence of, of that passion um, and that purpose when, when you're an entrepreneur and, and you're the only thing you've got because you're an entrepreneur. And so um, the importance of self-care and what it's meant to you in your own journey? Very good question. I've seen, I've witnessed people aspire for things, be it wealth or other tangible things that appear to be or to give the impression of wealth. But I've also seen, Jen, people who obtained those things and they died young. And when we learned about them, we learned that they were depressed and lonely riddled with anxiety. And those are the things that I love to understand more. How did you achieve this thing, yet you were deeply depressed? Hmm. And so when I started to really anchor in on my why, as much as I want the economic upward mobility for my community, I can't imagine leading with that first and not leading with health. Because if we aspire for all of these things and we're not well, we're not healthy and well in our, how we treat each other, mm -hmm. this community that I deeply desire to be built will be fractured. And in my own journey, I just don't, I don't believe in being a hypocrite. I can't push the community for a holistic entrepreneurship if that's not how I live my life. I saw my mother die at 50 years old with a lot of dreams left here, with children still left here, with a mother of her own still left here. And so being so close to death, knowing that we have no control over it in a sense, push me to want to live so 
so completely at my highest. So there is no dreams left on the table. And so as we think about how we show up in the work that we do in the world, I also know this, Jen, if I'm in a good place internally and you're in a good place internally, we have a better chance of hearing and seeing each other. Mm -hmm. And in that hearing and seeing, that's where change takes place. And so I'm pushing us to be in the in the in the space where we can hear and see each other. Love is all in that space. So being healthy and being well, that's what that is for me. The third lesson is that failure is not a bad word. Retired soccer player Abby Wambach, a two-time Olympic gold medalist and FIFA Women's World Cup champion, shared with me her personal approach to overcoming the failures she's faced in her career and how she turned them into opportunities. We, being society, all know you or you're synonymous with, with winning. I mean, that's, that's who we know you to be. But mm. you talked about many, many failures and suffering and whether it was the loss of the game or... Well, I think that the word failure has to be reclaimed. Mm -hmm. I think our whole lives, we're trying to avoid it like the plague. And, um, and, and every single person on the planet has failed. Every single successful person on the planet has failed and made something of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think back to the times of my life that I'm most proud of. All the successes that I ever had playing, all the medals, all the championships, all the, all the, the awards, um, they were directly related to recent failures that had happened. Recent things that I had to over, overcome. I have some unique failures of my life. I, I know this sounds super weird, but um, I broke my leg in 2008. Five days before we got on a plane to go to the Olympics in, in China. Because Wambach has not gotten up from that collision. This is one of the challenges that you have in playing a friendly just before leaving for a major tournament. You've got to take the risk. Though that was an accident, I very much um, input that into my brain, into my spirit as a failure. I had spent the whole of that, that year training. I was the fittest that I had ever been. Um, I was so excited about this idea, the possibility of representing my country again and winning another gold medal. Um, and, and so when I think about that time, I had to get really honest with myself in the moment of the game. And in the moment of the game, when I broke my leg, I lost myself. I, what my, my teammates would call, I, I turned red. Wambach is just using her strength, trying to penetrate straight through there, trying to get a shot off. But a nice job by Andrea Rosa to get her body in front of Abby Wong. Um, I was angry. We were playing against a, a really difficult Brazilian team. The referee, in my opinion at the time, wasn't taking care <laughs> of the players because this was the last game. You know, she wasn't calling fouls yeah. like I thought she should have. So I went into this tackle 
a little bit recklessly. Right there, and as she was following through, whether it's an ankle or shin or knee, certainly something on her, her lower body, but can't speculate at this point. Well, again, Abby Wambach playing in her 127th national team game. Andrea Rosa, we just saw she's up and she's limping it off. But Wambach, uh, that's been one of the storylines for the United States. And so that's on me, right? Like, I could have very easily chalked that up as, oh, you know what? Stuff happens. This is sports. This is part of the game. Um, but that wasn't it. Everybody knows what it feels like to fail. You know, you get embarrassed and you have that pit in your stomach and you don't want to share it with anybody. And turning failure into um, an opportunity is a mindset shift. Fourth, I learned that it's not the survival of the fittest. It's the survival of the kindest. I love that. Dr. Dacher Keltner, the founding director of the Greater Good Science Center and a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, shared how compassion is in our genes and truly a competitive advantage. In your book, you coined the term, or I learned the term, um, or the concept, rather, survival of the kindest. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, and, and I am Take a big believer of, you know, if you can be anything in this world, be kind. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of really struck me. Yeah. Um, can you say a little bit more about what you mean by yeah. that? Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Jen. I appreciate your careful <laughs> reading. So, you know, uh, that was in Born to be Good, which was like 10 years ago, nine years ago. And, and um, you know, I try to think about like, who are we as a species? And how do we evolve out of um, chimpanzees and bonobos seven million years ago? It's a lot of evolution in who we are. And, and then you, you answer that question by looking at the brain and genetics and nerve and emotion, right? And um, as I was doing the deep research for that book, I read Charles Darwin, The Descent of Man, 1871. And Darwin's really interesting, probably the most influential scientist who ever lived. And evolution is our, maybe the biggest idea that, that people have come up with for you know, understanding humans. And he said, uh, those communities with the most sympathetic members will flourish and raise the greatest number of offspring. Sympathy is our strongest instinct. Mm. And when I read that, I was just like, I, I like literally my jaw dropped and I was like, I screamed and because <laughs> you think of Darwin as saying it's all survival of the strongest or right. the most violent. And what he was, the reason he was saying that, uh, as historians have noted, is he was a really loving parent. He lost a daughter in early in life, uh, Annie, and he kind of got overwhelmed by sympathy. He's like, God, what is this passion? And now we know that our altruistic tendencies, kind tendencies are there first and foremost to protect babies. Mm -hmm. Human offspring are the most vulnerable mammal ever to be born. I like to joke they take seven to 52 years to reach the age of independence because <laughs> <laughs> they are their carrier genes and they take years to, yeah. of protection. Yeah. Uh, and that changed everything. So that Jan, along with these other findings of like, wow, compassion's in the vagus nerve. It's their genetics for it. Kids are compassionate. Babies are compassionate. We are compassionate to strangers. Says maybe we should rethink uh, the survival of what kind of species led to us. 
The fifth lesson is that your mind and body are inextricably linked. Amelia Jivatoskaya, a leading voice in the world of positive psychology and the science of flourishing, explained to me how building a greater understanding of the link between mind and body can truly enhance holistic well-being. I want to dive in deeper um, to the concept of of mind-body connection because I think for most people there's, you know, okay, let me take care of the mind piece and let me take care of the body piece and oftentimes we really think of them as two separate things but they're not and you know it's not like you can cut off your head and <laughs> and still live you yeah. know or or vice versa cut off your body and still and so yeah. um we don't often i think put those things together or think yeah. about them in that way so firstly we many people if they probably noticed how many times they reference the mind-body connection throughout the day, they would probably be shocked. That person's such a pain in the neck. Oh, I was worried sick. Oh, I'm heartbroken. We use these words all the time to actually describe this connection between our mind or our emotional state and what we experience within our body. We all live it. And within the field of science, it used to be mind and body medicine. Then we actually now called it mind hyphen body medicine and now it's actually just one One word word, so just the word mind body and when you were just referencing even chopping off your neck so if we were to chop off our neck and you actually would still be separating body from body right it's brain right the brain is an organ that is a part of our body which actually gets us more connected to a more profound question which is what is mind and what we now know is that the mind is not just in the brain the mind is actually all over our body the mind is is outside of the body and it's the in-between and it has actually to do with our perception and our reception of information that we're getting from our skin on the outside. We're getting it from our digestive system, yeah. which is on the inside. So where is this perceptual organ? It's not in any one place. It's actually all over our body. And so when we think about the mind-body connection, we're thinking about mind as Uh, a mental state, a state of cognition, a state of feeling. And it's very hard to separate that out from our body and our physical state. So we want to take care of both of them. And what's beautiful is as you take care of one, you you often tend to heal the others. Sixth, I learned that our voice is one of the most powerful tools we have to break down stigma. Naomi Hirabayashi, co-founder of the Shine app, along with Mara Liddy, spoke about how the power of breaking our silence can also break down long-held stigmas in society. Obviously, we're, we are still in the midst of, of this global pandemic, and it seems like um, this is where we're going to be for, for a while. And I know that you all um, have been doing some great things, um, really, to support your community and and others during this time you know those that you know are new to kind of struggling with anxiety but just in general um you know and and potentially depression ptsd anything that you know might be coming out of of this pandemic which i guess some of it is still still to be seen but you know certainly the uncertainty the loneliness um you know the the loss of kind of life as we know it, which for some can, you know, can be, you know, grief and grieving, Um, you know, what advice or, you know, kind of what do you think the best advice 
that either somebody gave you, you guys gave each other, <laughs> you like to give other people um, for taking care of your mental and emotional well-being, but especially during this time. I do think that's one of the, the powerful outcomes about this time is that there's um, a shared sense of struggle. And obviously this pandemic um, is highlighting so many um, inequities in our, our country. And yeah. so the experience for so many people is very different. And there is a common struggle in that no one, we, none, we haven't experienced what we're experiencing or anything like it. There's no playbook. Um, we're trying to process this time and trying to, to get through it. And so um, I think one of the, the powerful things is that in a very American way, they're like, Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm fine. You know, things are okay. And that might, it's probably not true. Most of the time, I think we're being a lot more open about what's hard versus trying to smile through it. I agree. And we, we did uh, actually a survey um, to better understand how our community was processing and navigating their mental health during the pandemic um, and the racial justice uprising in our country. Um, and one of the, the things that we saw was that um, people actually said that they were expressing their emotions more than they were before. And a big reason was because they knew that other people were struggling too. And it speaks to um, this, this communications theory that, that Mara and I were really um, inspired by in the beginning at the start of Shine, which was this concept of the spiral of silence. So um, the idea that for fear of isolation by publicly speaking out, you, you don't speak out. And as a result, um, common human experiences stay either taboo or kind of repressed. Um, an example would be like miscarriages that so many people mm -hmm. experience, but for a long time, you know, women were kind of suffering beside each other, not realizing that this was a shared experience because there was so much stigma about speaking out. I think we're experiencing a time where that is that stigma for mental health and that spiral of silence is starting to be broken. And the more that people speak out, the more they will speak out and continue to find those connections between people. And the other thing that we found that was really powerful, and this is to the question of like, what is something that you do every single day that I try to practice is remembering to share, like Mara said, I mean, this was such a big, you know, reason why we started Shine and why we connected is speak about what's hard, you know, speak about that inner narrative that's tough, that thing that you feel kind of ashamed about. Um, but once you you mention it, um, I did this the other day with Mara. I was like, I'm just being really hard on myself about um, feeling feeling behind. We we're talking about productivity guilt and how that's obviously a big thing right now because it's like in some ways you have more time, in other ways you have less time, and your energy depletion that's very very real. And so when we when we got to talk about that, I was able to be more compassionate with myself. And that's a similar thing that we heard from our community as well. So the people that are speaking out more about their mental health struggles are also practicing more self-compassion. And what I love about that is it's not about this quick fix or a silver bullet or any of that, because none of that exists in this space. But what are the ways that we can be kind to ourselves and be more compassionate with ourselves and where we can and if we have um, either you know virtual networks or in-person networks possible, connect over that struggle because that is, that is, I think, one of the most important things that we can do during this time. 
The seventh lesson is that time off isn't just essential to our personal well-being. John Fitch and Max Frenzel, co-authors of the book Time Off, discussed why it will be a necessary skill in the future of work. What do you say to the people who say, I don't have time for time off, or I don't have time for rest, or I don't have time for sleep? Hmm. I, my, my, if I'm going to look look at it through the lens of of the book, um, the chapter that has been resonating with me a lot post book launch is the reflection chapter. Hmm. And yeah, if you don't have, if you feel like you don't have the time, then that means someone else has your time. Is that culture? Is that your your boss? Is that you know what is it? Uh, identify that first, and then second, you can you can peel back the onion and and do you feel trapped? Do you feel like you have a lot of meaning? Are you creating space for the things that bring you meaning? And you know those hard questions that you can sit with for a long period of time with yourself, uh, I think is 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 the first step. So yeah. if you don't have time, I would ask them, well, why don't you have time? Let's like write that out. Uh, what is keeping you away from it? Is it truly external, like you're being forced to not be able to have time off? Uh, is it because you and your your partner haven't found a, a way to co-parent uh, more successfully? Have you not requested that you need time off? Therefore, it's kind of your own fault. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of reflections one can do. And that would be my, my first step. And one of my favorite activities from our reflection chapter, I do this all the time, both in my personal life as well as professional and on various scopes uh, and altitudes. And it is a more of, less of list. So I identify what are things I want more of in my life. It's typically time off or rest ethic like things, you know, deeper connections with certain people, more creative expression. But then I also talk about what I want less of. And so those are things that don't make me feel good in, in my life. And when I do that, it makes it very clear what's on the left side of the paper and what's on the right side of the paper. And, and you start realizing a lot of it's actually in your field of influence. You just haven't, you know, identified it and therefore uh, done something mm -hmm. about it. So, yeah, I, if someone really feels that way, uh, you can email me. It's John at Time Off Book and I'm, I'd be happy to walk through an exercise. I mean, anyone who feels trapped. Oh, I love that uh, answer. I, I'm going to yeah. say email this guy. Yeah, yeah. No, I, you know, I have a lot of uh, reflection prompts because I, I, I empathize. I've, I have felt trapped, yeah. Um, yeah. but I was trapping myself. And I, I have a feeling most people are, are doing the same or they haven't um, had the courage yet to speak up to maybe an externality that is keeping mm. them away from it and uh, happy to, to help. Yeah, I think you got that completely right. I don't really have much to add, but just one thing on the reflection side as well. I think one issue about understanding how important time off is, is a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, actually, because you only really realize how much you need time off once you start taking the time off to mm. reflect or just to get away from things. Only that's when it hits you how... like busy you actually are, how much problems that busyness is causing. And just one other exercise, which I think is very interesting, and I think that actually comes from John as well. Um, it's ask yourself the simple question, 
is all my hard work actually working? And it seems like a very trivial question at the beginning, but if you do the work and just sit down with it for, let's say, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you might actually get very deep and uncover some things that might be a bit uncomfortable, but really will get you ahead. And also maybe reflect on when do you actually feel the most accomplished i can say for myself from my own experience i don't feel the most accomplished on my busiest days those days are just i forget them again after well maybe still on the same evening the days where really in the evening look back and think yes okay i made a really big breakthrough this was a very important day i really achieved something i actually often didn't work all that much it was maybe just two three four hours at most Uh, maybe i was even out in nature hiking or something but i had a key breakthrough idea and then i sat down for an hour afterwards to just integrate it but those big breakthroughs rarely come on those busy days. So reflect for yourself, when do you feel the most accomplished? And then try and get more of that in your life. And chances are that will automatically bake some more time off into your life. Yeah. And I'm going to add to that, Max, you just inspired me that all of us have to think about where um, work work is heading even. And Max and I, Max more than I, but we've both spent a decent amount of time in the world of artificial intelligence and the commercialization of it. And if you are doing machine-like work, so I'm going to say anything that takes 10 seconds or five seconds or less of your thought to execute, that's likely a workflow or a task that a machine, if it's not already doing better, uh, will do better very soon. Yet, if if you've heard all of us on this um, interview, talk about these breakthrough moments these aha moments in a way where we're artists we're like designers we are yeah. the value we produce isn't output like a machine it's like a in, we invent something out of thin air like an artist and in a future where we're all more artists like uh, our book will show you this but you know just watch a bunch of documentaries on on artists of any medium and their non-working time is essential for their breakthroughs and yeah. so in the future of work uh, where we're all artists, see these micro practices of time off as like you're upskilling yourself for, for kind of what's left for us humans as the machines uh, execute the mundane much more effectively. Number eight is that you shouldn't dismiss your fear or your emotions. Dr. Susan David, I'm a total fangirl, a psychologist and author of the book, Emotional Agility, shared that you can use them as data and become more emotionally agile. So so let's dig into that a little bit more because uh, you keep talking about emotional agility and of course that is your book. So what is it and how does it better help us understand our emotions? Emotional agility I think is one of the most critical skills that we can have as human beings. Uh, again, it's every aspect of how we love live, how we parent, how we lead is ultimately driven by how we deal with ourselves, our inner world. So what is emotional agility? Let me give you a short answer and then let me give you a longer answer. The short answer is that emotional agility is basically the capacity to be healthy with ourselves, to be healthy with our thoughts, our emotions and the stories that we have. The longer answer is that there are core components 
to emotional agility that are really critical to this capacity to be healthy. Uh, the first is the ability to show up to our emotions with a level of gentle acceptance and compassion. And this really circles back to the beginning of our conversation, this idea that there aren't good and bad emotions. So if you start hustling with yourself and start trying to only have positive emotions or see your emotions as positive or only think good thoughts, then what you start doing is you start hustling with yourself. You start trying to push aside difficult thoughts or difficult emotions. Number one, it doesn't work. When we try to push aside these difficult emotions, there's actually an amplification effect. And listeners will have known and experienced this amplification effect. You know, you say to yourself, I'm really upset with my colleague. I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to, you know, push aside this difficult experience. And then you're in a meeting and you snarkily, you know, let the person know how you feel. Because oh, what yeah. you've got is amplification or this emotion. We've all been there. <laughs> we've all been there. We've all been there in a meeting. We've all been there at the Thanksgiving table. We've all been there. So the first part of emotional agility is really the ability to be able and compassionate and kind in the way we show up to our difficult emotions. So that instead of hustling with them or pushing them aside, we just accept them. You know, this is what I feel right now. I am in a situation in which I need to be compassionate with the fact that I'm bored or I'm anxious or I'm feeling undermined and I can be in that space in a way that is making room for that difficult experience. So that's a showing up part. A second part of it is about bringing a level of curiosity and mindfulness to the emotion. Again, so the emotion doesn't own you or the story doesn't own you. So what does that look like? It's about um, noticing your thoughts, your emotions and stories for what they are. They're thoughts, they're emotions, they're stories. They're not fact. And I can go into a couple of strategies later if that's helpful. Another part of emotional agility is about asking yourself, you know, who do I want to be in this moment? What are my values? So that I can actually bring myself forward and not be hooked by this difficult experience. So the short answer is that emotional agility is about being healthy with ourselves. The longer answer is that emotional agility is the ability to be with ourselves in ways that are curious compassionate and courageous so that we can move forward in the direction of our values in how we bring ourselves to the world and this is just again a critical capacity for all of us the ninth lesson is that kindness is a win-win it positively impacts the person giving it and the person receiving it and according to Dr. Kelly Harding, author of The Rabbit Effect, it's also contagious. When we're giving kindness to others or we're being kind to others, we know that there's obviously a positive impact on others. Yeah. What does the science say about the impact on us when we're being kind or giving kindness to yeah. others? Well, this is what's so cool. It's like a 
complete win-win, yeah. right? So um, being kind is good, and then also receiving kindness is good. And I think but it is really important to know that giving the kindness and whoever you are, that's an important part of being a human being, and it boosts our health. So. You know, there are amazing studies from nursing homes that even caring for a plant makes a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, like it doesn't always have to be these like grand acts of kindness. It can just really be these tiny day to day or caring for a pet or a child or a loved one. That actually is really important. And even when somebody, you know, for listeners who are out there who may be caring for a family member who's ill, it's actually really important for somebody who's even in the receiving role of kindness to be giving kindness as well and to keep that in mind. Um, so we know that volunteers volunteers live longer which is exciting because it's you know that's a complete win-win and it's nice because you know in the book the rabbit effect I talk about all these hidden factors of health and you know in terms of our social world the more things you can do to to get involved in all these different areas including our our neighborhoods in particular and also building friendships and volunteering is a great way to combine all those things it's a win-win so um is kindness contagious Yes, yes. So this is also where the neuroscience lines up so nicely with what we know from public health. So, um, you know, we are constantly mirroring each other. And this is something to be mindful of as we're looking at our phones a lot of the day, particularly for listeners who may have kids. I know I have three kids, so I'm extra mindful (laughs) of this now. Um, We are constantly mirroring each other. And we know that good behaviors are contagious so you're more likely to be kind if you see somebody else doing kind Mm. you know unfortunately that also works in reverse and so it's important to point out but here's the thing you know a lot of times I think people are sort of waiting for top-down change like let's wait for the system to change but we don't have to like we actually every single individual who's listening to this has far more sway in their circle than they realize and it's you know there are these studies of a friend of a friend and it turns out actually your actions are impacting people it's got this lovely ripple effect downstream so there is absolutely no harm in doing something kind and it can have this tremendous change of culture and sometimes it happens overnight which is pretty exciting and last but not least number 10 I learned that you don't need to make big, sweeping changes in your life to find purpose. Jonathan Fields, writer and founder of The Good Life Project, explained that small shifts can help you connect to your why. I wake up every day and I live into my purpose every single day. And at the end of the day, I can see the fruits of that in so many different ways. The reality is, you know, a lot of people don't have that or don't feel like they have that what do you what's your advice the two of you for somebody that says you know I you know I I hear you all of this purpose stuff is great but I don't know how to align it with the job that I'm doing today yeah and that is a huge question especially (laughs) these days right so here's here's my lens on that and I'm really curious to hear yours also like I think one of the biggest fictions is that if you don't feel that sense of, of fulfillment, uh, aligned purpose in the in the actual job or the role that you have right now, that you need to do something big and disruptive yeah. and leave and seek it outside. Right. Right. You may at some point need to make that move, but that is like that is the the option of you know, that's the last right. step that you right. take. It's not the first, and most people don't realize. You know, your your job first and foremost is if you don't feel it, 
is to look at your immediate surrounding, to look at the company you're working with, to look at your role, your job, and the tasks and responsibilities, and say, okay, um, let's go back to self-knowledge, right? First, I need to really understand myself, what matters to me, what fills me up, what empties me out on a various different levels, right? Then I need to look at the work that I'm doing and the culture that I'm in and the people that I'm with and the tasks and processes I do every day. And I need to identify where are the conflicts between who I am, what I need, what fills me up, what empties me out, and what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. What most people will find when they do that is there actually is a fairly high level of alignment, but there's one or two things that are really off. So then what you get to do is say, okay, I'm not gonna blow this up, right? Because especially the further we get into life, that hurts. If you've got a mortgage and a family and you want security, you don't wanna do that unless you absolutely have to. It's like, how do I redo what I'm doing right now? How do I change the way that I'm investing myself in what I'm doing now to get what I need without leaving? Um, There's some really interesting research around this called job crafting. Mm-hmm. And what they're showing is that, in fact, very often you can make shifts in the way that you're doing what you're doing mm-hmm. without leaving to get that sense of purpose and fulfillment and nourishment and flow and full expression yeah. without walking out the door. But most people don't realize that, so they don't even try. And they don't actually do the self-knowledge work to realize that, actually, there's a lot of really good stuff here. Yeah. Right, and there's there are a couple of things where if I do it a little bit differently, Adam Grant did really interesting uh, research, and Adam is you know, yeah. like one of the most <laughs> beloved professors at Wharton, and he took a group of call center employees at the university. They're calling to try and get people to donate money for scholarships. Huge burnout, huge turnover, poor performance. What he did with them was he did a really simple intervention, super simple. And he brought in a couple of kids who had graduated the school, not kids, grown-ups, right. graduated the school, who'd been you know, like first generation in college, and they went because of the scholarships that were raised by these people in the call center. In the month that followed that, the people in the call center felt like it changed the way they experienced their work, so much so that it wasn't just more fulfilling and more purposeful for them, but they actually raised something like twice as much money wow. by the effort that they put in. And, and it wasn't intentional. They didn't intentionally say, I'm gonna double my effort here. Yeah. They just, having a deeper understanding of the why, yeah. like it, getting a deeper sense of purpose for the work that they were doing, um, allowed them to function completely differently and allowed them to get what they needed differently. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is, step one, self-knowledge. Going, it just, it all goes back to that. Step two is contrast that with what you're actually doing and conflict resolution. Very often, you can make small changes, and it may be actually doing more than what your job description requires, which some people are like, but I don't want to do that because I'm not getting paid for that. But if that's the thing that actually gives you that sense of everything, do it. And what the job crafting research is showing that when you do that, it actually allows you to accelerate your growth within an organization a lot faster, too, and have much more control. Again, thank you so much to our producers, our guests, and our listeners. You can find the full episodes of the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a favorite episode or lesson that you've learned from one of our past guests, 
please reach out to me and let me know. You can find me again on LinkedIn under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter and Instagram at JenFish23. Thanks and be well.